Well, guys, thanks for being here tonight. And I'm down here on the floor because you have to help me. We're going to work together, okay? So I'm going to ask questions. And when I do, that means you get the answer out loud. Sometimes I do that on Sunday morning, and I have to convince my people it really is okay to talk in church on Sunday mornings. And every now and then, if you do it on Sunday morning, you get an answer you don't want. So that's kind of bad sometimes when I do that. We're talking about integrity. I like having a given topic, but speaking is one thing in public. Speaking for God in public, being a teacher of the Word of God, being a pastor, is a completely different issue because I cannot call you to anything in me. It's not my job to do that. Yet I am equally, if not more, accountable to what I teach than you are. So there's this interesting dynamic that goes on when somebody's called on to teach the Word of God is we have to be the most accurate, uh, the clearest communicator of God's Word that we can possibly be with the capacities God's given us, while at the same time knowing that any real communication comes from God the Holy Spirit and not from us. And it's not a one-way me talking to you. It's pretty well a three-way conversation. God speaking to all of us through me and me getting spoken to by you as I watch. And tonight, uh, Lord willing, as we interact. So we will do some interaction tonight. We're going to start out with that by thinking about what integrity is. So before you get in context of we're talking about men of concrete character and our item tonight is integrity, I want you to just think of the word integrity for a minute. Put everything around that you can think of, and then we want to talk about what integrity really means. What is that word? So just take a minute, think it through. I'm going to hush just for a minute so you can actually think. So, let's talk about it. If you are asked, which I'm asking you now, to say, tell me what you, how would you describe what integrity is? What do you think? I heard two things. Go ahead. Trustworthy. Being a man of your word. Very good. What else comes to mind? Anything else? Doing what's right, even when nobody else knows. John Wooden, well, somebody said years ago that character is what you are in the dark. John Wooden said, that we should never worry about our reputation. That's simply what people think about us. We should be concerned with our character. He was a great theologian that coached UCLA for years. He was a believer, by the way. He's now dead and in heaven. Anything else come to mind? Consistency. Yeah, same everywhere you go. I want us to think of it a bit of a global mindset. When I say global, I mean the whole meaning of this word integrity and where it comes from. An interesting way to develop your mind, believe it or not, is to get a good dictionary. And read words, the definition of words, excuse me. <clears throat> it's beginning to be springtime soon, and I've lived in Kentucky most of my life, but it still wreaks havoc on me. So if you take a word, and by the way, it's really funny if you knew me all my life to say that reading a dictionary could interest anybody because uh, I hated books growing up. Didn't like books, was allergic to books. I could never sit still long enough to read a book. But anyway, if you take a dictionary 
And if it's one that has some etymology in it, the history of the word, and follow it through, it gives roots to that word, and it helps your mind speak in pictures. So hidden in the word integrity is a Latin root that you know it's an integer. Does anybody remember your eighth grade math teacher talking about integers? Can you even remember what that is? It's a whole number. That's exactly right. It's simply a whole number. When someone has integrity, they are a whole. They're not divided. When you have integrity, you have an integrated being. You're not spiritual here, physical here, mental here. You are a human being. You are one. So when, when, when I knew we were going to talk about integrity, my mind went immediately to a verse of Scripture. Because it is the verse of Scripture that for years has spoken of the core of integrity to me. And it's in Psalm 86. So let's take a look at Psalm 86 for a bit. Turn there. And while you're turning, just to help you expand on your idea of integrity, do you hope the structure on the new Ohio River Bridge has integrity? holds things together, right? The steel that it's made of is composed in such a way that its molecular makeup has integrity. The way it is put together with rivets or welds, the whole structure has to have integrity or it's going to collapse. And if we as Christian men don't have that kind of integrity, life will in time put circumstances on us or put us in a situation when our integrity will collapse. That's why what you guys are saying about consistency, being the same in the dark as you are in the light, it is amazing what our flesh, the world, and the devil can throw at us and surprise us. As you'll see, part of integrity will be getting very familiar with who you are. And just just to make sure we're all on a playing field that's level, most of us are ignorant as a brick when it comes to accurate self-knowledge. If you want to know what you really are, if you're married, ask your wife. If you don't have a wife, get you one. You'll grow up really good, whether you want to or not. And if a wife's not enough, have a few kids. And then if you're a pastor, your kids will evaluate your sermon for you at the lunch table. Integrity in my mind is this, from our perspective tonight. Integrity is staying the same as a person when everything around you is changing. Now you know why I brought a cup of water. For the Christian, it's only half the definition. Integrity is staying the same when everything around you is changing. But it is also changing when the unchanging God, through his word, shows you where you need to make adjustments. Integrity has the capacity to see that we are still in progress. And sometimes out of our sheer stubbornness, we set our feet and we get to a point in life, and I'm old enough to be at that point now where we think we have arrived in certain areas and are past learning. You never get there. But let me tell you what, changing 
at 56 is a whole lot harder than changing at 26. But if you build into your life by the grace of God flexibility for Him to change you and Him to have functional title of your heart at all times, your integrity will stay much more pure. Psalm 86. I'm going to read all the way through verse 13. Well, I'll just read the whole psalm. We're not going to deal with it. There's one core verse, but we're going to deal with several concepts out of it. It is the only prayer of David in book three of the Psalms, but it is a wonderful prayer. By the way, men need to spend time in the Psalms, especially American men, because most of us have truncated or very depleted emotional lives. That's one area our integrity suffers. Most of us learned in the culture we grew up in that emotions are not part of manhood. Well, if they are not, why in the world did God give them to you? We don't experience God to his fullest because we have been taught in culture that tears and certain things are signs of weaknesses. My dear friend, the greatest sign of strength I know of is when a man is very comfortable to be himself and knows himself in any arena. So let's think about David. David was a man's man. There's not any two of us in here that could have taken David in battle. And if you think you could, you are one foolish dude. When he was a shepherd boy, he killed a lion and a bear with his bare hands. Do you know what a lion can do to a human? If you like to read, there's a great read called Death in the Long Grass. Old book written by an old safari guide in Africa years ago. And he's talking about the deadly beast of Africa. The first chapter, I think, is on lions and man-eating lions that he was hired to hunt. He's very funny, love reading him, and he's a very good writer in describing exactly what a lion can do. If you're hunting lions, and there's a crouched lion 40 yards from you, and you already have your gun loaded, do you know how long you have to get a shot off to kill that sitting lion before it kills you? Two seconds or you're dead. Because if you wait too long and the lion is already charging and is close enough, you could shoot it right through the heart and there's enough adrenaline left in the, dra- the, the uh, dragon, the lion to still follow through and hit you from his muscles already knowing what they're going to do and still kill you even though you've already killed him. Why did I tell you all that? I don't know. It just sounded cool. But it's true. <clears throat> I did really read that. What I'm saying is David killed one of those. He was a man's man. But he had a rich emotional life. He wrote tons and tons of songs. I have no idea how many instruments he played. We know he wept. We know he cried. We know he was on mountaintops and in despair. We also know he's a master theologian. So this is David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. That is not a natural prayer unless he knows how great God is. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Now, don't let that phrase trip you up. When he's saying, for I am godly, that Hebrew word is representing one who is a child of the covenant. I am reflecting the faithfulness back to you that you have pledged to me in your covenant. That's why he's saying he's godly. And then he cries, save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. If you want a a great study of the Psalms through a month or through half a year, get in the habit of underlining every time the psalmist said, you are my God. Not you are God, but you are my God. 
because it's the personal relationship with God that's accentuated in many of the Psalms. And then he keeps praying. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Was he some kind of wimp or something? He's crying to God all day long? No, he knew who God was. He knew who he was. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. So where does a real man go when he's down in the dumps, when he's discouraged, when he's depressed, when he's self-doubting? You go to the Lord. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. We've got to call attention to that verse because I am astounded at the utter confidence David has in speaking to God and knowing what God is like. How in the world could David make a factual statement, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you? How could he be so confident to say that? Do you feel it? He read it just like we did in his Bible. His Bible was the first five books of the Old Testament. We'll find another line in here that he directly quotes from the Word of God. Even though he's pinning it with this psalm, his knowledge came not just from personal experience. It came from that because David was an inspired writer. But it came from studying the truths already recorded about God. He knew God is good and forgiving. He understood the sacrificial system. He understood it was pointing to the Messiah. He understood that God really did forgive his children's sins. Give ear, I'm in verse 6, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. David could even see to the end of time when every knee would bow and every tongue confess to God that there was none like him. He just didn't know the details of who Jesus was, but he knew who was Lord. For you, God, are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Now we're to our focus. Teach me your way, O Lord. And if you notice, it's all caps in L-O-R-D in that one. The others usually aren't in this psalm, but this is the name Yahweh, the personal name of God. The other name is Adonai, speaking of God's sovereignty. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. And there is our integrity. Unite my heart to fear your name. The biggest struggle a man has in keeping integrity as a Christian is a divided heart. What has our loyalties? I would give my right arm, I think. Maybe I shouldn't say that so confidently but I think I would, if I could get some of my own church members to be as excited about the Lord's Day as they are about Kentucky's game tomorrow, or Thursday, whenever it is. It's an odd thing what can grab our heart's attention. And our heart longs to have its attention grabbed because innately we know that we are a created being, that we need something outside of us to sustain us, That's why people go nuts over things and get their hearts attached to them. Why else could a man love fishing so much or golf? I like anything with a ball. I like, I love to fish. I can see this. I heard something. You were talking about golfing today. I've got a retired brother. I guarantee you he was on a golf course today. And if he only played 18, that's a miracle. He forgets I'm not retired and he calls me. 
hey, you want to go play golf today? I'd love to, but I've got work to do. During hunting season, he says, because I've got some friends who have farms at where we live in Oldham County, he said, you want to take me rabbit hunting this week? Uh, yeah. Finally, I got to take him rabbit hunting. I shot all three of the rabbits. <laughs> he didn't even get to pull a trigger. And that was without a dog. But what grabs our hearts and why? So let's look at verse 11. I'll read it again, and I'll read through 13, and we will stop at 13. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Integrity. Integrity is being whole. Integrity is staying the same when everything around you is changing and yet changing when the unchanging God through his word shows you where you or where I need to change. Now, let's do a little Bible study together. What I'd like for you to do is look at just verse 11. Read it and give me three points you learn from that simple verse. If you had to sit down and explain it to someone who knew less about the Bible than you, what would you tell them from that verse? Take a minute. All right, between the bunch of us, surely we can come up with three things. Tell me one thing. Yes, sir. Ah, very good. That's good. There's a correction element to that that I may not be going your way, so I need to know what your way is. I don't want to do it my way, I want to do it your way. Very good. What else? We need that work in our very soul, deep in our heart, for our own selves. It's something we need to cry out for. We can't do it on our own. Very good. What else? Ah, learning is for living when it comes to the Bible. Thomas Watson's a Puritan, lived in the 1600s in England. He has a book, several books. One of them is The Art of Divine Contentment. And in the front of that book, he's writing these things probably to his church. They probably at one time were sermons. And he says to his own church people, basically this plainly, why is it you listen to my sermons week after week and do nothing with them? Are you not intending to learn and change your life, or are you rather storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath? He was not, he hadn't been to the Norman Vincent Peale, How to Win Friends and Influence People, or Dale Carnegie course yet, had he? But you know what? He's exactly right. I, I know people whose whole Christian life exists of listening to sermons on CDs, tapes, and radio. Hours of listening. I cringe every time I prepare a message now. Because the Bible says specifically, 
my brothers, be not many teachers, for we shall receive the stricter judgment. I asked one of the smartest men I know that question, a question about that verse once. His name is R.C. Sproul. You probably know the name. Some of you do. I had him for a couple of classes. And uh, we were walking out the door, and we just talked about that verse. And I said, Dr. Sproul, what's that verse do to you? He turned around, looked me in the eye, and said, it scares me to death. Made me appreciate him even more. Because it means he took it seriously. So, let's look at it. We are to learn from God so we would walk in his truth. There is no such thing as learning to get a bigger head. Learning the Bible is never just for knowledge. It's for wisdom and walking. And to the Hebrew mind, wisdom was your life. It's what you did. It was not like the Greeks getting a head full of stuff up here. So if you just take it apart, it's so simple. Teach. That means there's some things I don't know and somebody's got to teach me. Me, it's personal. I'm not telling God to teach that person next to me in the pew. I'm the one asking for this. And it's been pointed out, it's God's way, not my way. And it is the Lord of the universe, the personal God, the one who has a name, who revealed himself to Moses and through his word. Why then do I want God to teach me? Because this is a prayer. So that I may, because I can't do it if you don't teach me, walk in your truth. So God has some truth that's understandable to the human ear. Do you realize how far God had to condescend, had to come down so we could understand him? God does not speak in words like we do. His intelligence is so far above that. Language is something humans have. And so that we could grasp God, he gave us his word and he gave us his son. This book that we carry with us is far greater miracle than most of us have ever dreamed. That we in it literally hear the voice of God. And that's why we know we can pray these things. If we didn't have this book, do you know everything you knew about God would be just about? There's a few things we know through nature, but everything that you knew about God would be make-believe. That's why in our churches we have people today that think that Jesus' favorite instrument was the piano. Because we're superstitious and we are culturalized in our Christianity. There are people who think you can't worship in any kind of seat except a pew. And there's churches all over the world who have no such thing as seats. I worshiped with a Kurdish congregation once in Turkey, central Turkey. It's the saddest worship I ever experienced in my life. I couldn't understand a word they were singing, but I knew their tunes, and they were sad, sorry tunes. But you know what? If you were singing out of the context in which they sang praise to Jesus, you would be singing sad tunes too, because most everybody in that room had given up their family and their job for their faith in Christ. And it was an expression of genuine worship of their love for God, even in a moment of sorrow. Oh, if music doesn't lift me up, I can't tap my foot to it, then it's not Christian music, right? No, that's superstitious, make-believe, culturalized Christianity. We need the Word to teach us about God so that we know the real God. And when we do that, what happens? We continue to pray, unite my heart. God, don't let anything divide it. Don't let anything take my attention away. Unite my heart. Well, for what purpose? To fear your name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of, yeah. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. The angel of the Lord encamps round about those who fear him and delivers them. Fearing God 
is having the clearest picture of God Almighty you can properly have, and you then, in result, give him the glory do his name. It is not a fear that makes you shudder in the sense that you can't operate. It is the fear that gives you such security. You are strong enough to be a man of integrity in any circumstance because if you fear God, you need not fear man. And to be honest, most of us lose our integrity out of the fear of man because our heart's not united enough. So, then what's he say? I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. How did he give thanks with his whole heart? Because he had just asked God to teach him in his weakness and in his ignorance and to unite his heart to fear. Would you not like the experience on Sunday morning when Pastor Luke is preaching to be giving thanks to God with your whole heart? In those very few moments in which any of us have experienced that, and we are taken up as if to the seventh heaven, and we lose ourselves in the glory and the presence of Christ. The world is finally put in proper, promote, proper perspective and proportion because our heart is captivated by God. Our financial worries, our job worries, our relational issues, they don't look so big then. I will then glorify your name forever. Why? Because now I see that great is your steadfast love toward me, you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol, the depths of the grave, or from death itself. Now, let's get practical. We learn from this that integrity is both learning and living, being internally transformed by having a heart united in the fear of God. If I have integrity then, what's the fruit? That's the question we're going to ask, and then we're going to ask, how do I get it? Integrity, according to verse 12, recognizes its true source. Look at what happens in verse 12. I give thanks to you. Do you know anybody that is a genuinely and fully grateful person? Does anybody come to mind in your life? Somebody that just reminds you that they're thankful for most everything they have. Are they a sourpuss? I have never met a sour, thankful person. Thankfulness is a sign, true thankfulness is a sign that we have a lot of things about life right, that we have much to be thankful for because we serve a great and a giving God, and it keeps me small in my perspective and God big in his perspective. Integrity recognizes the source of the united heart. Having it transformed by God and then responds with gratitude. Gratitude is actually a huge sign of integrity. Why? Because only a secure person can be truly thankful. It's hard to be thankful to people when we are intimidated by them or fear them. Because we're afraid if we give thanks, it'll look like they're better than we are or we needed them. A secure person never worries about giving gratitude. And our security doesn't come from us. It comes from being in Christ having our heart united around him. So the reason gratitude, again, is a huge sign of integrity is it recognizes our dependence on God, God's faithfulness to us, and our gratefulness reveals a true knowledge of how life is, who God is, who you are, and who does what. That's a whole lot to think about. I'm going to say it again 
I don't even know if I'll explain it. I may just send you to think about it. Gratefulness reveals a true knowledge of how life is. That is, who God is, who you are, and who does what? God is the creator and controller of all the universe. He upholds all things by the word of his power. You are created by the very word of God. In other words, we each of us are a ball of dust that God put together and breathed life into. We shouldn't think too highly of ourselves. Because there's not a lot to think of ourselves. Especially when we see the inside of our soul through the gospel and recognize how wretched of a sinner we really are. Did you know integrity comes when we learn what the cross really is? And the commandments of God show us how much we've blown it. And you finally come to the cross by the grace of Jesus. And you can face yourself as a man for who and what you really are. You know why some of us won't confess sins and won't repent? It's not just stubbornness. We've tried so hard to make a living for ourselves and earn our own way. We're still trying to do it with God. And the reason we won't come clean and confess is deep in the bottom of our hearts, we don't think the cross of Christ and his shed blood is enough to really make us right. A secure man is one who sees all that he is and takes all that he is to all that Christ is on the cross and admits his brokenness, his sinfulness, and his weakness and receives Christ, fears God, and lets Christ unite his heart. That's where the core of integrity comes from. And we here have the advantage over David because he didn't know the specifics of the redemption of the cross like we do. So we know who God is, we know who we are, we know who does what. God's in control. Verse 13 shows us that the unifying factor of our heart is knowing God's loving nature and in fact that he loves me. Now, Sometimes preachers can get a little syrupy sweet about talking about the love of God for humans. Christian songs can get unduly sweet about Jesus being our best friend or whatever that might be. Well, I heard one guy writing about Christian songs written back in the 80s and 90s when they got kind of dorky. And he said, can you imagine opening up the words to this song and reading it to your buddy when you're sharing a deer stand together? He'd scoot away from you for such girly language. Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's not my best friend in that buddy-buddy sense. Yeah, he's my friend, but he's God. So thinking of him loving me is the manliest of all things to know that I'm loved of God. Do you know John wrote in John 4.16, 1 John 4.16, we have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. Let me, let me just get real at home here. Did you know that if you are secure in the love of God, you will have far less need to ever get angry at your wife or to be intimidated by your wife? Now, I've been married long enough, guys. I can fully admit that half the problem we have at home is we are intimidated by our wives. They would never tell us they know it, but you need to grow up. She knows it. But if you are secure in your manhood, 
not because you're bigger, stronger, smarter, make more money, or anything else, but because you know you're loved unconditionally by Christ, it's a lot harder for your wife to hurt your feelings. Sometimes we get upset with our wives because we're looking for them to do for us what only God can do. And in that way, we make her an idol. Or we teach her to make us an idol instead of training her to have a heart united to fear the Lord alone. That's why integrity is important. It's also contagious. <clears throat> it's contagious to us and to our children. All my children are adults now. My son was just home for spring break, went back last night. <clears throat> Delighted for him to leave. I miss him greatly. And as a 22-year-old young man, I, I can't express the joy of seeing what God has done. Now, I can say that because he's number four of four children. And <clears throat> after having four, we know where the real grace comes from. It ain't from mom and dad. God allowed us to parent those kids. But when you see the Holy Spirit go to work and take a young man's heart and change it, Integrity is catchy. So, integrity of heart, excuse me again. <clears throat> integrity of heart, an undivided heart, helps us then respond rightly to difficult circumstances and to those who oppose us. Uh, let me read the rest so I can show you I didn't make that up. Verse 14. This is where David gets to specifying some of his problems he's praying about. Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life. And they do not set you before them. And here is where we know he's relying on Scripture. He's quoting Exodus 34, 6. I think that's the verse. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Now talk about manhood. David was courageous enough to admit there were men coming after him. He at one time in his younger life, he said, these sons of Zariah are too strong for me. Too strong for David? Yeah. But what's interesting is his united heart did not ask God to take vengeance on them. He asked God for mercy for himself. He wasn't some whiny guy wanting God to take care of his problems. And he said, God, I want you to work with me. I want you to be gracious to me. I want you to give me strength. So if there is anything I do need to do, I can do it by your power, by your grace, under the direction of your word and spirit. And he wants people to see it was the Lord's hand who has done that. That is integrity. Now, before I move to any kind of uh, personal application, it's just clear and not all that long. you have any questions? Anything you want to engage in or things you want to ask? If something pops up while I'm talking, flag me down, okay? So, how do I become integrated, or how do I develop integrity? First, by being very aware of yourself, developing an honest and accurate self-knowledge. 
I said something sarcastic earlier on purpose that we are ignorant as bricks when it comes to knowing ourselves. It's because we each have spent a lot of our lives developing rather sophisticated me uh, mechanisms to hide the weaker parts of us. We avoid certain social situations. We avoid certain people. We are dying inside, and yet we put on a front and won't tell what's really going on, which means we are ashamed of what's going on or we're afraid of what people is, are going to say about the real us. You know, they, the public speaking is still one of the greatest things feared in the American society. And that we display our personality and fears up in front of people when we're speaking and we're afraid. And one of the postures, you know, we all have postures. This is one of them you're never supposed to do. My hands are cold. But there's one called the fig leaf that really tells you how scared you really are. A public speaker stands just like this. It is a sign that we are afraid. A lot of us walk around life like called having armor. We might not cover ourselves with our hands, but we have developed a rather thick coat of armor. And one of the reasons we're always worn out is because armor is heavy to walk around in. When you're in Christ, you can let go of the false faith. You can let go of the false self. You don't have to be right about everything. You don't have to be best at everything. You just have to be you. God never called you to be me, and he never called me to be you. He called me to be me. So we've got to be aware of ourselves. The world I grew up in kept me from having much clue about me until I was way, way into adulthood. I love and I hate personality profile tests. They've been a study of mine for years. I love to study the human makeup. First time I was ever exposed to it was during my master's work in seminary back in the 80s. And after seminary, it, I just ate it up and began studying it. But I was young. And I was trying to be the person in life I wanted to be. And I would take these tests, filling out and answering questions of what I thought I was. And then I took my full, first full-time position out of seminary, and I had a, real, a, a group of some rather uh, sharp college and career kids that I was working with. And we did a temperament study. And I asked one of the young ladies, who was, I think, a master's level student at the time, and extremely sharp, we were studying then the old four-part Hippocratic uh, temperament theory of sanguine, choleric, uh, melancholy, and phlegmatic. And those words may not mean a thing to you, but they're basic temperaments. And uh, I said, what do you think I am? She looked at me and she said, you're a melancholy. I want to hit her in the teeth. Of all the temperaments, that was the one I did not want. That's your kind of moody dark, inward, artistic, sissified kind of fellow. I grew up playing football in high school and college. The last thing I wanted to be was some melancholy, artsy fellow looking at pink things on the wall. And that's what I thought a melancholy person was. But God took me through a whole series of events in my life as a man, a father, a husband, a pastor, one of the things that revealed the reality for me was being exposed to my emotional reality through the deepest, darkest depression that you could ever imagine. Something I would never go through. 
it was proof of a whole number of things, but part of the proof was I have a very melancholy temperament. And it took years for me to see who and what I was. It doesn't take a, a tragedy to see who you are. For me, I was pretty stubborn, though. It also taught me the gospel because I was a legalist and perfectionist at heart. And though I knew in my head I was saved by grace through faith, I worked really hard to help Jesus save me. I was actually very good at being a legalist, following rules, and God just decided one day to say, oh, you want to play that game? Okay. Michael Horton's got a book called um, Putting Amazing Back into Grace, and one little section in it, the caption is, jumping through hoops is for circus animals. I was a hoop jumper. Read my Bible every day? Got it. Share my faith? Got it, God. What else is next? Oh, you need to be a faithful husband. Oh, got it. And it just kept getting higher and higher until Jesus said, be therefore perfect even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. God says, jump through that one. I said, okay. He let me hang right here. And do you know, God did not come and rescue me. He let me hang and choke until I realized if I want a heart of integrity, I have to get off my high horse and say there's nothing I can do to save myself. Because as long as I think I am contributing, I am open to pride and vulnerability and fear and deceit because I've got to keep it up. But if I admit that Christ is the one and only Savior and I have died and my life is hid with Christ in God, no assault can be given to Jesus that will ever affect him. No accusation can be made that is, un, that is true about him. He's perfect, and I now am in him. That, my friend, is the core of a heart of integrity in the Christian man. That's the only way we can lose the fear of man also. So, by being aware of yourself, by accepting your humanity. Third, by living in your limits. We live in a culture that teaches us to live to and beyond the limits. Living beyond your limits is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of in my life. What idiots, that's a Greek word. Actually, it really is, and I can say that for truth. Um, wants to live beyond their limits. I mean, have we lost our brains? What happens to a jet when a pilot flies it beyond its limits? He crashes the sucker. What I'm saying is God designed you a particular way. He gave you a specific brain, a specific temperament, certain capacities, not to live beyond them, but to learn them so you can live to the limits. This bunk about living to the limits is talked by people who have no idea what their personal limits are, so they have no chance of living to their limits. I want to live to the limit, but I've got to know what mine are first. So many people, have, especially Christian men, have tried, pastors above all people, living beyond our limits. We drive ourselves and our churches nuts. We can live to our limits if we know them, and that sets a man free. Also keeps our integrity strong, because if we live beyond our limits, we will stress our systems beyond what they are capable, and we'll end up drinking, we'll end up having affairs, we'll end up doing really goofy stuff. All of these things, being aware of yourself, accepting your humanity, living in your limits, come by having a solid, grounded faith in the objective nature of God and God's revelation. In other words, knowing who he is, who I am, and that he loves me. And I close with that. How do I know? Do I feel it? Sometimes. 
But that's not how I know. It's one of the things that drove me to depression is knowing that God loved me. I needed to feel it as a melancholy guy. And one of the ways I could feel it is if I've performed enough and I had this quasi-feeling that God was really happy with me today and patted me on the head just like a head coach. Yeah, good job, son. Well, the feelings went away. And I found that my assurance was not sunk in an experience I had in church, not a prayer I prayed, but in a thing that happened 2,000 years ago on a cross and a resurrection that settled it forever. That I am Christ and will never be let go out of his hand. Changed everything. We developed that kind of thing through the normal means God has given us. Nothing fancy, no big splashes. The word of God, prayer, church, family, and friendships. So how then do I know? How do you know when we're growing in integrity? By honestly acknowledging the state and progress of our relationships and how we're handling our responsibilities. You say, how did you leap to there? Because most Christian application is bunk. You can't measure knowledge or feelings. According to Scripture, we are given two areas to measure our fruit. Relationships, responsibilities. You just work on that one for a while. The reflection of your true spiritual state is seen in your closest relationships. That will show who you and I really are. And a person of integrity makes really good relationships because people like being around.